Yesterday, uh, some of you know, uh, was a significant day for, for Will and I. Will and I were ordained uh, priests in the Church of England. That means we'll be having communion a bit, regularly, a bit more regularly from now on. Uh, but I've been sort of reflecting on what, what, what it means for us, and I think we've both been doing that. We actually had three days of sleep, I mean retreat, um, <laughs> where, uh, where we were reflecting on it, thinking about what it means. And look, I don't want to overstate this. But there has been a shift for Will and I. There's, a, there's a some kind of shift, some kind of change happened yesterday for us. Whether that was simply a change in the way that we were viewed by the Church of England. Some sort of external shift. Whether you want to say it's simply that. Or whether you want to say there's something internal that changed. Whatever, however you want to understand it, something shifted for us. And what happens when there are shifts, changes in our identity, what happens usually as humans is that we want to mark it. We want to symbolize it. We want to uh, do something, throw a party or a super long church service. Whatever it is we do, we want to mark those occasions. And that's what we were doing yesterday. It's a shift in our identity that was, that was sort of marked by this service. And actually, that's exactly what we've been doing this morning, isn't it? When we've been celebrating here with these, these youngsters, we've been recognizing something happened this morning that shifted forever their identity. Again, whether you want to understand that externally or internally is entirely up to you. But something happened this morning, after which something has changed. That's what happens. That's what we do. These symbolic moments, these moments of change and transformation have to be recognized. They have to be noted. They have to be set apart. And I want to ask the question this morning as we sort of look at Acts 4, and as we're in this story of, of the church being set on fire by the Holy Spirit, what is it that marks the church out? What is it? What, what is, if you, if, to put it in the language you've already used, what is the church's true identity? If the church is being the church, what happens? What is the church's identity? What marks the church? And we read, don't we, right at the beginning of Acts 4, the priests and the captain of the temple guard and the Sadducees came up to Peter and John while they were speaking to the people. Okay, the context here, if you're new to this, if you're new, we're like four chapters into a series on Acts and we're looking at how God, by the Holy Spirit coming at Pentecost, set the church on fire. But what happened is that Peter and John healed a guy, a guy who was lame from his birth, who couldn't walk. He was a beggar outside the temple in Jerusalem, and he, re he received everything he had from other people giving generously to him. And, and he says to Peter, hey, look, have you got any money for me? As they're going into the temple, and Peter says, no, I don't, but I don't have any money, but here's what I do have, and what I do have I give to you in the name of Jesus of Nazareth. Get up and walk. The man, he pulls the man to his feet, and the man walks from that moment. His identity right then and there is shifted. And what happens after that is Peter, who never wastes an opportunity to preach, goes and tells the people about what has happened and why it's happened. He unfolds. He, he doesn't just... De doesn't just demonstrate, but he also proclaims the truth about Jesus. And it's in the midst of his sermon that these guys interrupt him. While he was still speaking to the people, they interrupt him. They were greatly disturbed because the apostles were teaching the people, proclaiming in Jesus the resurrection of the dead. I want to suggest this morning that the first sign of the church being truly the church 
The first sign of a Christian living out a true Christian identity, the first sign of a Christian being marked by Christ in the world should be this, a disturbance. When the church is being the church, it should be disturbing. We can be so sanitized as the church. So, and this is a word that it almost pains me to say in connection with the church, but we're often so domesticated. Because we're looking to the culture to tell us what we should be like. We're desperate for the affirmation of the culture. Hey, you want me to be like this? Okay, I'll be like this as long as you don't hurt me. Like a pet that's been mistreated, just cowering. And yet we don't see that in the early part of the Acts at all. We see a church that's not domesticated, but a church that's disturbing. Disturbing to who? Well, here, the obvious example of the disturbance is towards these guys, the Sadducees. Now, they're some of the religious people of the time. What marked those people out particularly, you've heard of the Pharisees probably, if you've read the Gospels, these guys were also Jewish religious people, but they weren't like the Pharisees in some key ways. First of all, here's one way. They didn't believe in the resurrection of the dead. So what really brings them into contact with Peter is that he's proclaiming the resurrection of the dead, and that disturbs them. They're disturbed by Peter's message. But these Sadducees, their, their strategy for bringing the kingdom of God in the world in which they lived was, was all about cooperating with power. So they, they were essentially, this was their strategy, to become the teacher's pet. You know that person in your class at school? Or that person at university? Or that person at your workplace who's, who basically, you, they're just sucking up to the people, to the boss, to the teacher, to, to the lecturer, whoever it is. You've seen that person, maybe sometimes once or twice, you've been that person. Because the clo- you know, you feel like the closer you are to power, the more likely you are to get what you want. That's the way the Sadducees did it. If they just buddied up to Rome, then, then they'd get what they wanted. They were just sycophants. They were all about power. And they come here to Peter, and they're disturbed. They're disturbed. Why are they disturbed? Because Peter here has disturbed the order of things. Here was a, a lame man who's dragged to his feet, and all of a sudden there's a crowd and there's a commotion. There's danger here of a riot. And if there's a riot, the Romans will be unhappy. And if the Romans unhappy are unhappy, we won't get what we want. The Sadducees here are disturbed because Peter is causing a disturbance. People in power are often disturbed when their power is threatened. Because deep beneath people, beneath the surface of people who are seeking power in that way is insecurity. The Sadducees are deeply insecure, deeply concerned, deeply worried. They're disturbed because the apostles were teaching the people, proclaiming in Jesus the resurrection of the dead. They seized Peter and John, and because it was evening, they put them in jail. They just want to lock up this demonstration of power. So the Sadducees are disturbed, but also they're not the only people that have been disturbed. The man was disturbed, wasn't he? The lame man who was just sitting outside the temple a couple of chapters ago now, a couple of thousand years ago actually as it happens, but he was just sitting outside the temple and he was disturbed by Peter. He was disturbed by John. They disturbed his life. They interrupted his his regular day and, and the disturbance that they brought about was incredibly fruitful for him. 
It meant that he no longer had to beg. It meant that he was in the temple right now, walking, leaping, praising God. We've talked all about that. So I guess you could say that the first kind of disturbance the church needs to be familiar with, even comfortable with, is the disturbance that comes from disturbing people in places of power. When that power is not being wielded for pure reasons, when, when people are just trying to be in power just for the sake of power, the church has a message speaking truth to power. But also, we've got the disturbance, not just of the greatest, but of the least. A gift of healing given to somebody who didn't have anything. What a disturbance. And these guys, Peter and John, they've been disturbed too. Their lives were disturbed by Jesus. They were given a purpose that disturbed them. It changed them. It it overturned their comfort. The church is called to be a place of disturbance. And here's the thing. We're supposed to disturb the comfortable and comfort the disturbed. The church is supposed to be a place where we, we see a disturbance of the comfortable. And the, 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 the disturbed people, the people who are outsiders can be comforted. That's the mission of the church. So if you've come here this morning and, and you're comfortable... I pray the Spirit of God lights a rocket under you. And you leave this place like, whoa, what was it that happened? Even if you're brand new to this, you you might be thinking this morning, what is it these guys are doing? It's really weird. What was all that water at the beginning and the children and the dancing? You know, that thing, what was that? And you might be thinking, well, they sing for such a long time, and I don't really understand what the sing is about, and all the words in there, the, uh, the cornerstone, well, trust me, it gets weirder than that. We sometimes sing about lions and lambs, and there's all sorts of thing that, stuff that goes on here that you might be thinking, wow, it's really weird. Maybe, maybe there's a disturbance that God's doing in your life this morning. He wants to disturb your comfort. Maybe we've become comfortable in our faith. Here's the thing, if you're comfortable in your faith, you're not growing. The purpose, of, the purpose of God in our lives is always to disturb us that we would grow further. You know, the goal of the church is, to, is that a group of people become like Jesus. Are you there yet? Are you, are you as gracious as him? Can you say, can you look your enemies in the eye, even as you've been crucified and say, I forgive you? Probably not, I can't, so you've still got some room to grow. Are you as faithful as Jesus? Are you as generous as Jesus? Are you as kind as Jesus? I don't say this to beat anyone up. I'm just making the point that there's always room to grow. And sometimes the comfortable Christians, the in-club, need to be disturbed. But if you've come here this morning and you are disturbed, if you've come here this morning and you're lonely and you're, you're wondering where there's hope and you've come here and you're tired and you're weary and you're sick maybe, you're ill, you're anxious. The Spirit of God, Jesus, Jesus wants to pour His Spirit out this morning that you might be comforted. That you might understand that there's a family into which you have been called. That Jesus paid for you with His blood. That you could become a child, that you could know that you're a child of the Father in heaven. That's the message. 
we celebrate here. And it's all about grace. It's nothing you do. It's nothing you earn. You don't have to be good. You just have to be willing to receive a gift. That's a disturbing message. And it's particularly disturbing if you've got it all together. It's particularly disturbing if you've got power. Because the last thing that people with power and authority want to hear is that people with no power can receive free things. Not about to get political, don't you worry. Church needs to be a place of disturbance. Secondly, the church is supposed to be a, a place, a community, people of power. Of power. What do we read? Where? Where is it? It's, it's moved. Next day, the rule is verse 5. The elders and the teachers of the law met in Jerusalem. Annas, the high priest, was there. So were Caiaphas, John. In other words, it's a who's who, folks, of the powerful people in Jerusalem. Alexander and the others of the high priest's family. They had Peter and John brought before them and began to question them. By what power? Or by what name did you do this? By what power? You see, these guys, these guys who have all the power, recognize power when they see it. And they know that this power is a power that they have no access to. There's a release of power in this man's life. This man who everybody in Jerusalem knows, this lame man, everybody in Jerusalem knows him because he's the one that's been there for over just about 40 years begging. So they understand that power has been released. They are fascinated with power. Where is this power from, they ask? By what power or what name did you do this? Then we read on, verse 8. Then Peter, filled with the Holy Spirit, said to them, rulers and elders of the people, if we're being called to account today for an act of kindness shown to a man who was lame and are being asked how he was healed, then know this, you and all the people of Israel. By the way, people is, Peter is not a people pleaser. It is by the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, whom you crucified, but whom God raised from the dead, that this man stands before you healed. Jesus is the stone you builders rejected, which has become the cornerstone. Where is this power from? It's from God. First of all, verse 8, Peter filled with the Holy Spirit. Secondly, verse 10, know this, you and all the people of Israel, it's by the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth that this man stands before you healed. This power is from God. The church is a place of power. We claim in the church to be connected to God. And therefore, we should be a place where we experience and see God's power released. That's our hope. That's our prayer that our lives would be regularly witnessing, we'd be witnessing an outpouring of the power and presence of God. Let me say, for each of us, that's going to look very different. Some of us, we are going to be like Peter and John. I believe this mission, by, is for, this is for the whole church, by the way. But some of us, God wants to particularly use us to, to see people physically healed or, or whatever, to see people coming to faith. That's for the whole church. But some people particularly seem to be employed in that. But what about this? What about the power to love our enemies? What about the power to actually get along? The power to be unified with each other. 
The power to love one another, to forgive each other, not just one time, not just seven times, but 77 times, seven times, 70 times, goes on. You know, that, that requires God's power. To be a community which resembles Jesus to the world takes a power that you and I don't have. Because I'm not very good at being like Jesus. And I, you know, I wear a dress once a year and go to a cathedral and you might think that I know what I'm doing when it comes to following Jesus, but I'm just figuring it out too. We're to be a place where God's power is so that we can reveal Jesus to the world. Thirdly and finally, we're to be a place where there's courage. What does, what does power look like? Well, it looks like salvation. 5,000 people are saved at this point. A week in. We're a little behind those numbers here at Trinity, but we're, we're working on it. But power doesn't just look like salvation, although it does. It does look like healing, but it also looks like courage. Manifest examples of courage. Look at this in verse 13. This is one of my favorite verses in the Bible. Print gets smaller every year, I tell you. <laughs> the lights are low in here, aren't they? Get it on the screen. Second paragraph there. When they saw the courage of Peter and John and realized that they were unschooled, ordinary men, they were astonished. And they took note that these men had been with Jesus. Isn't that wonderful? Think about what Peter's doing here. Keep it on the screen, please. Think about what Peter's doing. By the way, Jay is serving for the first time, uh, doing our, our PowerPoint stuff or whatever. Thank you, Jay. You can join that team. You can be like Jay. <laughs> and ultimately like Jesus in that way. Then. Where was I? Think of what Peter's doing. These people, these Sadducees, were the ones who put Jesus to death. His Lord and Messiah, just weeks earlier, eight, nine weeks at this point earlier. And Peter was looking on. Peter saw these guys meeting in such a way as this just weeks before. And he knew the outcome of it was that his God, his Lord, Jesus was put to death. He knows what's at stake. And there he is, standing face to face with them, in all honesty, with all courage, confronting them with the truth, speaking truth to power. How much courage does that take? An extraordinary amount of courage. A courage to overcome direct threats to his life. A courage to speak publicly. Where is this courage from then? This courage that we all want more of, where is it from? When, the courage, when they saw the courage of Peter and John and realized that they were unschooled and ordinary men, here's where it's not from. It's not from his education. It says here, he was unschooled and ordinary. That second word, ordinary, in Greek is idiotes. You may be familiar with that word. <laughs> Idiots. Unschooled. It literally, it means that he's had, unschooled means he's had no sort of rabbinic, he's not being trained in the Jewish faith formally. To be ordinary, to be an idiot, means he's had no rhetorical training. In other words, he's got no right to be preaching this good of a sermon. That's what it means. There's, a, there's no way that Peter could be preaching such a powerful sermon as this because of education. What must it be? They say, well, it's not that. It's not his education. I've se and they say, I've seen this somewhere else. There was somebody else who spoke like this. There was somebody else who behaved like this. There was somebody else who was as courageous as this. Wait. 
these guys have been with Jesus. They're just like Jesus. Wait, I thought we killed him. It turns out he's alive. Because a man was healed, and here are two men speaking courageously. When people see the church being courageous, when people see the, the church causing the right kind of disturbance through comforting the disturbed and through disturbing the comforted, when people see the church embracing the power that is in God that wants to be released, they will say, these people have been with Jesus. They'll work because they know us. There's nothing special about anybody in this room beyond what's special about every person in the world. But if we've been with Jesus, people will take notice. We're to be courageous. Heard a story about Martin Luther King. Martin Luther King Jr. Many of you may have heard this story. I think I may have shared it, but my memory's bad enough to, to enable me to enjoy sharing it again. On the night of January the 27th, 1956, Martin Luther King heard two voices. The first came when a telephone call awakened him in the middle of the night. Listen, and I've edited out there a racial slur. We are tired of you and your mess. I'm not going to try the accent here. If you ain't out of this town in three days, we're going to blow your brains out and blow up your house. Click. The phone went down. King admitted to being scared to death, that's a quote, and paralyzed by fear. The night he got the phone call. After he hung up the phone, he sat down in the dark of his kitchen, poured some coffee and planned ways he might leave Montgomery, Alabama without looking like a coward, looking for a way out. He couldn't take it any longer. I was weak, he said. But it was when he confessed his fear to God from his kitchen table that he heard a second voice. Stand for truth. Stand for justice. I will be with you even to the end of the world. I will not leave you. I will not forsake you. King knew the voice belonged to Jesus. And in that moment, his fear disappeared. Although raised in a very religious home, theologically educated and trained as a minister, that night in the kitchen, King experienced God in a profoundly personal and intimate way. For the first time, he felt the reality of God with him. King said the voice convinced him that I can stand up without fear. I can face anything. Weeks after he got the phone call, he was informed that his house was bombed. Everyone showed up, ready to do battle. What did King do? He had everyone sing Amazing Grace. Amazing. He was educated, schooled. One of the cleverest guys I've ever, the best preacher I've ever heard. I just encourage you, if you've never been on YouTube and you want to waste a day, a <laughs> whole day, you can easily do it watching Martin Luther King. It's stunning. If you want to particularly watch the sermon the night before he was assassinated, I've never heard anything like it. What a wonderful man, but his power, his power, his courage, the disruption he caused wasn't about his education. It wasn't about any external credential that belonged to him. It was about the fact he heard God and he believed that God was with him. He knew God was with him. So what? Church, do you feel powerful this morning? Do you feel courageous? Do you feel ready to cause a disturbance in Nottingham? Probably not. I don't feel that powerful. The key is in understanding what we did this morning. 
The key to understanding what it, how we become the sorts of people that do what Peter did actually are found in understanding what happens to us and what's happened to us in baptism. So what happens in baptism is that we're united with Christ. We go through the water, symbolized in the splashing of water with kids, with adults. You know, we go completely under and we come out. And it's a symbol of what happens when we come to Christ, when we come to faith. And what happens is that we are united with him. We die just as he died. And then we're raised to life. And that means we've already died and that means we have nothing to fear. Because the last and greatest fear is death and we've already died. And that means we, like Dr. King, can stand up and, uh, and preach and, and speak and act completely courageously knowing that nobody can take anything from us. We don't fear death, even death, because we have been, we've died with Christ and been raised to life. That's what happens in baptism. But it's not just that. It, we're united with Christ by being immersed into Christ. The language of, of baptism, the Greek word is baptizo, and literally it was used in the time of, of the New Testament actually to refer to in the, primarily in the dye trade. And what would happen is that you'd have a vat of dye, of color, colorful liquid, right? And you'd put whatever material you wanted into that dye. And let's say the material was white like this, and let's say the dye was red. You'd drop it in there, and you'd pull it out, and what would you find? Not a white garment, but a red one. Because whatever you are immersed in is what you become. That's what happens in baptism. As you and I are immersed into Jesus, we become like Jesus. And wherever we go, whatever we do, whether we're having a good day or a bad day, particularly happy day or a sad day, an anxious day or a confident day, whatever it is, Jesus, we can be sure and confident that Jesus is with us because we are united with him and because we've been immersed with him in baptism. Finish with this, Martin Luther, not Martin Luther King, I didn't actually know he was going to use both Martin Luthers, but the, the reformer, the Protestant reformer, way back a few hundred years ago. He used to say to people that what you need to do is to, uh, when they were struggling, you know, maybe emotionally or spiritually, he said, crawl back to your baptism. Crawl back to your baptism. And in fact, it was so important to him that he had, and, and I thank Will for this, he etched in his own desk, I have been baptized. Because he needed to know that the truths that were true of him in baptism, that he was united with Christ, that he'd been immersed into Christ, that, that because he was baptized, because he belonged to Jesus, never would Jesus leave him, never would Jesus forsake him. He needed to know that those were the truest things about him. Not whether he felt courageous, not whether he felt powerful, not whether he felt on any particular day ready to cause a disturbance for God, but because he'd been claimed by God because of Jesus' love for him. Church, that is my encouragement this morning. Crawl back to your baptism. If you haven't been baptized, we receive these truths by faith. Baptism is, is effective because of faith. It is faith that pleases God. And you too can be sure, you can be convinced that you belong to Jesus because of faith. And all it takes is your yes Added to his yes. He's already spoken his yes over you on the cross. It's there for all to see. All it takes is your yes in combination with his yes. And you will be saved. 
and he will give you courage, and he will give you power, and he will disturb you when you need to be disturbed. He will comfort you when you need to be comforted, and he will use you to bring his courage, bring his power, and bring his disturbance to those around you. Why don't we stand?